Welcome to the podcast Imaginations and Cancellations. My name is Annie Nazari and in front of me is sitting Professor Dr. Frans Willem Korsen, the person who wrote the book that this podcast is based on. Every episode we tackle a chapter of the book and try to understand the city through vectorizing sensibilities, which is the way that our feelings and senses are steered by how cities are presented. Each episode we will have two cities as a case study so we can understand the topics even better. This episode we will be talking about forms of address and rhythm in the cities Isfahan and Jakarta. So this episode is about address and rhythm Mm -hmm. by means of uh, lyric and poem. And in the chapter we start out in the Naqsed Jahan Square Mm -hmm. in Isfahan, which means the pattern of the world. Um, It is a representation mirroring of the world of the cosmos of the cosmos of the universe and that brings in uh, what you just said address so if we organize if we build a city you can analyze that in terms of let's say practice people have to live somewhere and preferably in a less or more or less organized way so let's make let's make that possible the other thing is that that cities and buildings in cities are often also an expression in themselves, or they try to capture something about what the position of people is in the world or in the universe. So if we look out into the sky, we see stars and configurations or constellations. Now, people have made, let's say, have organized life on a, on a yearly basis in relation to the seasons due to the, the movement of the stars. But you could also say, can't we think of a way to to establish a relation between what we're seeing there and, and where we live, which can be then uh, analyzed in terms of harmony. Let's say that there would be a harmony between the movement of the stars and the way in which you organize the urban environment. And that is um, an issue of address, because if we build a city like that, or a square, what does it address? Is it only addressing human beings? No, it's not, because we tried to capture a relation between this architectonic form and, and something that's incredibly bigger. So in a sense, if we, if we organize it like that, like this square, it says this is a square that expresses a relation between us and all that out there. And then the city is no longer simply a place where we live. It becomes also an expression in itself that says something about how we relate to the world and the universe. Is it also making Isfahan as a city more important? Would <laughs> you say we we are the pattern, the naqsh mm-hmm. of the world, or this square at least? And because we're housing it here, it's... I think it's extremely important to ask that question. What does a, a city express beyond that it's simply a place where people live? that it's also an expression of how they live and how they relate to the world. Um, And in one of the uh, other chapters we dealt with Amsterdam that was built like a theater. And I think that's comparable. Coincidentally, these two cities were by and large built around the same time. So it may also be the case that at that point in time, historically speaking, people asked that question, how do we relate, relate to the world? Now, if we go back to the previous session, we talked about the situationists and how they considered capitalism to be the opponent. If at some point the question no longer is in terms of urban expression, how does it express how people relate to the world, but becomes functional, 
then that's an expression in itself as well, of course. But then the city no longer expresses a relation with the world. It expresses, in a sense, its function in relation to an economic system, which is also a, re- a relation, but, but a radically different one. So suppose now, I think that the question of how cities relate to the world or to the universe becomes more and more vexing again now that we have these massive ecological problems. And one way of dealing with that is that you say, okay, we have to solve this, which is that you're going to look at how green the urban environment is and how the sewerage system works and so forth, and how, let's say, circular the economy economy is. But you could also ask, isn't the, the problem that we're having, or the many problems, the result of an attitude of human beings towards the world? I suppose we want to change that. I think that would have to include that we build urban environments in such a way that they express that different attitude. And that's why I think uh, this square in in Isfahan is so incredibly inspiring. There's also one um, mosque in Isfahan mm-hmm. um, that's also about the relation between God mm-hmm. and the in- individual. Mm-hmm. So the the Sheikh Loftala Mosque, mm-hmm. uh, the ceiling is very incredible and there's like a lot of, it, it's very beautiful mm-hmm. and uh, very magnificent. And is the ceiling addressing the viewers or is the viewer... Um, witnessing something. Yeah, that's the is analysis. It, yeah, yeah, so yeah. is it is it coming from above mm-hmm. or is it from bottom up? And if yeah. it's bottom up, then it's probably some interpretation, right, of what's... Yeah, that's inevitable, right? So so you have to interpret what's that ceiling doing? Yeah. It's an incredibly complex geometrical uh, constellation of forms based on the golden ratio. Yeah. Now, suppose you'd go to a, a, a cathedral in... Uh, in the Netherlands, for instance, the Saint John, uh, Saint John in uh, in Nimbos. and then you stand uh, in its central place, where the, where the, let's say the, the two axes cross, and you look up, yeah. and then there's an eye painted in the center of the ceiling. That eye is looking at me. That's the eye of God. So, in a sense, what's established there is a relation between an entity looking God and me down there, and there's a hierarchy. I have to look up, and I'm being watched. Or, if you want to kind of interpret that more uh, positively, I'm taken care of. But this ceiling in this mosque does something radically different. It doesn't represent an eye. It's, it doesn't even represent a recognizable character. It's a pattern. It's a pattern that's based on a certain distribution of forms, which is called the golden ratio, which is at the basis of many works of art, but also at the basis of many natural shapes. Now, the question that's being asked in this chapter is, does that express the might of Allah, which then turns it into a representation that tells us how great Allah is? Or is it, in a sense, in its beauty and in its capturing, mediating, a very complex harmony? Is it addressing Allah, in a sense, saying in in an architectural way, oh, Allah, then it's not a representation of Allah. Allah is being addressed by it, and we witness that. So kind of like we made this ceiling for you. Yeah. Yeah, So this is why this is analyzed in terms of the apostrophe, which is a lyrical figure of saying, addressing something that's not there. So if I say, oh, freedom, then freedom wasn't there yet. But Mm -hmm. if I say, oh, freedom, then I address that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not addressing you. I'm addressing freedom. So there's something else that through my address comes to life. And you're kind of witnessing that. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're witnessing it. That is why I, I wouldn't have to say, oh, freedom. 
So considered like this, the ceiling becomes an apostrophe in calling upon, in its beauty, Allah, and we witness that. Okay. Could it also be that, <laughs> very shortcut uh, analysis, um, in Islam you can't draw prophets or God, um, but in the um, in a church, for example, you, you also can't draw or, or represent God, mm -hmm. but you can draw, paint, prophets. Mm -hmm. And do you think that, that this effect that you just described can also be felt or seen in the 16th chapel, for example? Because if you look up, mm -hmm. it's mostly angels and people, mm -hmm. but it is still very magnificent. And it's not like natural forms, it's, no. it's pe people. Yeah. Um, or people like, uh, let's say, recognizable. Yeah, recognizable figures. Human like. Uh, Does it have the same? Is it because when I went there, I was I was just in awe because it was so huge, immense, big. So it was a lot too. Yeah. So I was Im impressed as an individual. I think it's a very good question, and it's complex. Uh, let's put it like this. So, first of all. Um, in Islam, but in, in other religions as well, uh, there's this prohibition to, to represent in a recognizable form the divine. Uh, by the way, that's also uh, the case in Protestantism, mm -hmm. where even in, in the most, let's say, uh, orthodox churches, you're not even allowed to, to have a cross, because a cross is already in itself a representation. The fear behind that is, is that we start to confuse the real thing and the representation, or that we think that through the representation we can come to the real thing. So the, the fear for the image is, in a sense, the fear for the fact that we somehow could capture the divine. It's an interesting logic behind that, and it's a logic of representation, right? So we have the reality of God, and then it's being represented. And I think if you uh, have a look at the 16th chapel, and what Michelangelo tried to do there is to to make something that indeed somehow captures, represents the divine, and that impresses you as a result. Now, of course, you could say you can never represent the divine, so in that sense it remains, let's say, an apostrophe, right? So it's it's not the real representation of Christ or the real representation of God, but, but let's say both point to... But it is a representation of, and a very powerful one, because these two fingers touching is one of the most let's say, repeated uh, uh, iconic moments that we have. Let's say this, there's so many other images that play with that or that make a parody out of it. And, and God as an as a older man with a beard is also pretty iconic. And that's, that's really different from the ceiling in the mosque where you could argue that, let's say, because it uses the golden ratio, it represents some sort of pattern that is also a pattern traceable in the universe. But at the same time, it's, it's calling upon something else. So it doesn't, it doesn't claim to represent. And that's, that's a different dynamic. Mm. And, and uh, what I do in the chapter then is ask if, if you consider cities only as the place where people live, you might miss that there's something in the very existence of a city that, that escapes its function to house people. So in another chapter, we talked about uh, do buildings or cities tell something? Do they represent something? And then uh, one scholar, Rufus Goodman, said, no, no, buildings way more resemble music. Mm -hmm. With music, I mean, you have a, a couple of, of, let's say, 
musical pieces that claim to represent something, uh, but most music doesn't represent. It's it's way more uh, analogous to this mathematical ceiling of the mosque, mathematically organized ceiling of the mosque. Yeah. So suppose you would think of cities in such a way, then the people living in the city are being addressed by it in a certain way, or the city addresses something else. So this is why I ask, suppose that all the people living in a city disappear. Does the city stop to express something? I think not. Yeah, but it will be uh, dead very quickly. I mean, if if all the people would disappear all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. of course the buildings will stay like the mosque Mm -hmm. that we talked about or the 16th chapel, but it will not grow or it will not have life anymore. That's true. It's dead, perhaps. But suppose some other being comes there. You can make new life. I mean, create. Possible. Maybe it will, it will probably not be exactly the same as it was before, no. but a new yeah. a new type of yeah. city. Okay, uh, let's do it like this. Suppose a poem is, is published. It's in a book. Yeah. No one's reading it. Mm-hmm. Does it exist as a poem? It is. Yeah, the poem exists. Oh, exists, but it doesn't exist yet because it needs a reader to come to life. So that's the analogy that I draw. So suppose you take away the people from a city, then the city still exists. It's still in potential expressing something. And this is all related to, let's say, that issue of address. What what is it if we look at the city that way that it that it addresses? And there is something extra human to that in a sense that that it might be the case that cities express something that is not simply functional or practical, but that is addressing something else. As if human beings through the city say, oh, universe. At the Naske Jahan is... Yeah. Uh, In that case, yeah. Center of the center of the world yeah. type of... Yeah. So you could also argue that, for instance, nowadays cities don't say, oh, universe, but oh, technology. Or other things. Or other possibilities, yeah. yeah. So we just mentioned that the poems try to uh, represent something and there's there's text in it, but there's also some kind of metric to it. And the metric is what makes you remember, mm-hmm. I think, True. Uh, the poem. I mean, there's, there's this Armenian poem and <laughs> I don't remember everything, but I do remember the intonation of it. That's that's the metric, yeah. and it goes on, and that's how people used to tell stories right. in the ancient ancient Greek mm-hmm. times. It's they were written as poems, so the people will remember it. And I think that's also the case in in daily life. Mm-hmm. That there's some kind of rhythm, some kind of metric to it. You wake up. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of the Beatles song that woke up, jumped out of bed. <laughs> Tried to go across my head, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So is that maybe what's making daily life? And then during COVID, I'm thinking this this got all confused and there were two paths. People were either very confused and didn't know what to do or they were finally able to get the rhythm themselves, mm-hmm. make it themselves. Is it also the case with cities? <laughs> That's a very good point, and I think you already answered it. So the COVID crisis immediately made that clear, that there's a rhythm to life, to urban life, and that as soon as as you're locked up, that all changes. So you call it a metric. I think it's that's part of it. 
so so let's say in in the chapter meter is more let's say a fixed rhythm which would let's say by and large coincide with people getting up at seven o'clock in the morning right and and go to work but there's also a rhythm to it and if you say uh, people told stories in ancient times yes but if you take a rap nowadays it has the same thing so there's people immediately recognizing certain songs not not just because of the words but because of the rhythm and there's that's that is that's pivotal or or intrinsic to let's say not just individual lives but how a city m- moves internally with in the case of Jakarta enormous flows of people coming into the city going out of it again into the city going out it's breathing almost. like breathing it's yeah. like this yeah, movement that she's like in yeah. out. out right yeah, yeah. so it's these kinds of rhythms that make up urban life for sure uh, you could also analyze it on a, on a slightly bigger scale again in let's say different differences of rhythm uh, uh, during the day and during the night right so so a, civ- a city never sleeps <laughs> uh, so there's all sorts of things going on in the night but it's different rhythms and different movements so the the two main things that they were d- discussing this episode are the lyrics the lyrics, mm-hmm. the lyrical, and um, the poem, mm-hmm. which we both discussed. But what exactly is the difference between the two? So the 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 essence of the lyrical is this mode of address, uh, described by by Jonathan Collar, the apostrophe that I I call upon something, and in calling upon something, I I I make that present, and I make myself present as the one who calls upon in relation to an audience. So in a sense, the lyrical asks, what is the the city expressing, calling upon, as an entity in itself, to which we are the witness. The poem brings in the entire realm of of the organization of rhythm, of sounds, of rhyme, and of two different systems. Uh, so we have, in language, the grammatical system, which organizes a sentence, for instance. But in a poem, I can cut up the sentence. And then, let's say, the system of of the poem, in its cutting up the, li- the lines, becomes something separately. And it becomes something separately because it brings in a certain rhythm and is probably organized on the basis of forms of rhyme, or parallelism, as they call it. But is that uh, poem, you said that it's like there's a rhythm to mm-hmm. it, but is it also going around the normal sentence structures and which is why it is, is harder to, to understand. You have to probably read a poem a couple of times before you fully understand it. That's true. Uh, you have poems, let's say, that, that still use uh, sentences that are grammatically organized, but you also have poems that, that, that start to, to work counter to any kind of grammatical order. So in that sense, uh, a poem comes closer to what we, d- what we discussed with the situationists, that it can cut up the organization of things or the order of things. So in that sense, a poem is is a, a more playful way of organizing stuff than a narrative. A narrative is always forced to follow this logical chronological order and the grammatical uh, organization of sentences. That's what a poem can do away with. It can do away with, let's say, the grammatical order of things. It, it can do away with the logical chronological ordering of things. It's more a matter of parts and wholes. And that... that uh, means, and I think that's also what you pointed at, that if you read a poem, you of course start somewhere and you get to an end, 
But the question that the poem asks is, how do the different parts relate to the whole? So you, you enter into a dynamic that's way more related constantly between where am I here and how does that relate to the whole? Whereas a narrative is, is indeed, where am I in the, in the organization of the narrative? Yeah, the, the narrative is, you need context for the narrative. Right. For the poem, you, yeah. the poem is the context. Yeah. So suppose, let's say, I move from my house to the station, and that movement can be considered as a narrative. I yeah. start somewhere, I'm in the middle, and I know mm-hmm. where I'm going to. The poem asks, where am I in this environment? And wh- what is, th- what is the, the whole of that environment? So the poem is the environment? The yeah, yeah, in a sense it is. Also visually, right? So, so if you see a poem, often it's, it's already a thing in itself. And in the chapter, we also deal with a, a famous poem by, or part of a poem by Paul van Ostaje, which is, is, is the surface of a page. And then all sorts of words in different sizes, it's visually different language, visually very complex, where you, you don't even know where to begin. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so, you, so you're constantly thrown into the middle somewhere, and mm-hmm. you have to ask if, if this is the part, how does it relate to the rest? And that's related to the collage and it's not <laughs> because poems are so much determined by rhythms, rhyme, parallelism so there's there's repetitions also reminds me of the poem The Hills We Climb by Amanda Gorman I think oh, that yeah. was yeah. Um, during the, the inauguration right? of yeah. Joe Biden right? it was her like she does very something very interesting I think it's called spoken word uh, just an, an, I think a genre within poetry mm-hmm. you do something like very interesting with the way you you bring your words and, right. and the rhythm and uh, the way you end sentences and if it's read out being read out loud it has a different tone to it it sounds more differently than if you read it on paper absolutely and if you start to translate it you'll be uh, in, in more difficulty even yeah because if you translate this purely in terms of content, you will lose everything that it is. Mm-hmm. You'd have to find some sort of equivalent to the rhythm that it had in another language, which is extremely difficult. Yeah, it's almost impossible to yeah. translate. Translating a poem is near impossible. It's like, <laughs> I don't know who said it. It was like, it's like standing in a shower with an umbrella. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's a good, that's a good uh, metaphor. If we translate this back to urban environments, they all have their specificity. It would be impossible to translate a city. And this is also why we recognize it. Uh, even if they kind of, in the Netherlands, for instance, if we take comparable cities like Amsterdam, Utrecht, Rotterdam, The Hague, they all have their own rhythm and their own kind of sound. An own feel. Own feel, yeah. Yeah, we're doing with this podcast, we're trying to... Um, define a city or uh, try to express a city mm-hmm. in a certain way. We had um, lots of things. We had allegories, we had media, and now we're at, at forms and genres. But I, I don't think you can really like understand the city without being there. That's true, but it's, it's, um, it's also part of one of the chapters. That it's a famous uh, ex- uh, phrase by Walter Benjamin. A city is such a complex thing that it it, it will always escape the expressible, which is, by the way, the theme of the last uh, session. The last one. This concludes this episode. The next episode will be the last one. Then we will be talking about forms of capturing the inexpressible in the cities Jerusalem and Hiroshima. Thank you for listening and keep imagining. Imagine.